Welcome to ACA Media, which is now the podcast of the Journal and no Journal of. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> well, this is my first time doing it because, of course, I wasn't on our last episode. So, the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. That's it's a it. whole new world for oh, ACA Media. Man, it's like underscore underscored. It's I'm you know we can't even keep track anymore. But yeah. I am glad to be back. I had to miss an episode because I was not well. But Who I are am, you? Yeah, it's well. It's been a while. You know. No, really. Who are you? <laughs> I don't even know. I'm a different person now i think are you yeah um it was a wild wild time i'm actually saying that because you didn't say who you, you didn't introduce oh yourself. see i'm so out of practice <laughs> i am christine becker and i'm michael kackman all right now we're back in the groove yeah man squeaker i gotta relearn all of this that's all right that's all right i think it, it, you're gonna be uh, uh back in the saddle like like nobody's business okay good um i'm, I'm ready to go and uh, I've actually had to relearn uh, sleeping too, because part of what I went through, and I had, I, I never actually got a diagnosis. I just went through some sort of weird illness, and it included not being able to sleep. And it was sort of like, you know, you read about people who've been in an accident and they have to relearn how to walk. That's what I had to do. I had to mm. relearn how to sleep. It's a very strange circumstance, but That's it's made grisly. me extremely grateful for sleep now. Sleeping more than is so good. Yeah, uh, we should do a, 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 you know, a segment sometime on academic sleeping. Because one thing I learned as I was, you know, asking uh, people were asking me how I'm doing and stuff like that. And they mentioned, well, the sleeping problem, everybody in our profession at the very least uh, can't sleep. Like yeah. uh, people were telling me and you were, you know, telling me, um, stories of just awful sleeping habits and, and not even habits, but just, you know, illnesses basically that mental and physical that, uh, lead to sleep problems. So we are yeah. a sleep deprived group. It's true. It is so true. And man, I used to be a pro, mm -hmm. like, Really, really like elite grade sleeper, and um, yeah, I'm kind of off my game. Yeah, and maybe there's something that happens at this age, this particular age. We're in our 40s now, or mm. a little mm -hmm. further. Mm -hmm. I, we won't, yeah, we won't name uh, birth dates here. But um, I also was a champion sleeper um, until I went through this illness, and I couldn't even nap or anything like that. Um, mm. So it's been a very weird experience. The other thing I would love to do a, um, a segment sometime on illnesses while teaching, and especially chronic illnesses, because I had yeah. just a, a brief taste of it. It was about six weeks that I was out of commission and couldn't really function, and then I got better again. But I you know, was doing research on people with autoimmune disorders and things like that, and mm -hmm. these especially physical ailments that aren't visible, readily visible, but you are, you know, you have awful uh, pains and things like that inside, and how people continue to do their um, you know, their jobs, do their work. And so I think that's, we should do a segment on that sometime and find it, you know, if anyone out there is willing to, uh, to share their stories, um, we'd love to hear them. That is a very good idea. All right. Well, we are on the eve of SCMS as we're speaking here. So we're hoping to get this episode out in time for those, um, going to SCMS and we have both segments which are relevant to SCMS. So First up, I have a segment where I interview members of the uh, a couple of the SEMS awards committees. So the Catherine Singer Kovacs uh, Best Essay Award and the Catherine Singer Kovacs Book Award. And I speak to Alfred Newman on. Dang it, Alfred. That's Alfred. E. Alfred E. Newman. I, I knew I was going to do that. I had it in my head saying, don't call him Alfred Newman. It's Alfred Martin and Michael Newman. 
um, who I interview. And then uh, I've got a little interlude in between those interviews. And, and just to explain, I talked with both of them before they did any of their uh, reading of their materials, just to kind of get their sense of what they thought it would be like. And then I interviewed them afterward about what it, what it was really like. So you'll hear that, first of all, the interview with Al Martin, then an interlude where I explain who exactly Catherine Singer Kovacs was. And then we finish with the Michael Newman interview. So you get the you get the uh, enthusiastic, shiny, happy puppy part of the interview, and then the oh my god, I read so many words. Yes, exactly. Yeah. These st- stunned into yeah. submission. And the Kovacs. Well, I've, I'll I'll hold off comment, but uh, okay. there's a lot of good stuff here. Okay, great. Um, and then we're going to follow that up with a repeat of an episode from five years ago, a segment where we introduce you to the wonders of Seattle. Since we're back in Seattle, back in the same hotel as we were in 2014 at CMS, we thought we'd just rerun that segment where you can hear about things to do in Seattle. Right on. Here we go. I'm joined by Alfred Martin, who is an assistant professor at the University of Iowa in communication studies. He has a book project coming out, The Queer Politics of Black Cast Sitcoms from Indiana University Press. Thank you for joining the podcast, Al. Thank you for having me. So you are the chair of the committee to determine the winner of the Catherine Singer Kovacs Essay Award, which Mm -hmm. is awarded to the best essay published in a journal. So what led you to volunteer not only for being on the best essay committee, but for chairing it? Um, initially I was interested in, uh, doing anything sort of service oriented for SCMS because I'm always just very interested in understanding how the sausage gets made. Um, and so on one hand, that's kind of what I do in my research. Um, so in a lot of ways, this seemed to be a bit of a natural progression. Um, last year was the first year that I volunteered, uh, for SCMS in any capacity. And I was on the panel, um, the panel selection committee and quite enjoyed that, um, even as it is a lot of work. And this year when they were calling for volunteers, I certainly still volunteered for, uh, for the programming committee, but I also selected a couple of other committees because again, I was just kind of interested to see what uh, what went into all of that. In terms of chairing, Molly just simply asked me if I would. And I asked her, uh, before I said yes, I asked her what that entailed. And she essentially just told me that it would be, you know, sort of herding the cats, if you will, and then creating the uh, report that will ultimately send to what I call big SEMS. And, uh, and then presenting the award at the uh, awards banquet at the conference. So I said, absolutely. And speaking of hurting the cats in a writing report, what do you have to do? So what are your duties as chair? And then what instructions have you given to the individual reviewer? So like what, what all do you all have to do? So uh, this year, I believe we got 38 um, essays. And so obviously our task is to read all 38 of those, um, those essays. So um, part of what we then have decided to do is that every essay is going to uh, get a roughly five to six page you know, read through. So we'll read the first five or six pages of the essay. And from there, we'll kind of decide, uh, because by that point, they've gotten to their thesis or presumably have gotten to their thesis, have gotten to 
you know, whatever their research methodology is. And so in that way, then we can actually decide whether or not this is something we feel like, yep, we need to read this all the way through. And again, because it's really, in some ways, it's much like the job market. We're looking for a shorthand to to try to get a much more manageable pool so that we're not doing a deep reading of 38 essays um, in the midst of everything else that we have to do. Mm-hmm. How many people are on your committee? Uh, the committee is three people total. So there are two people other than me. Okay. And are you all reading all the essays or are you chunking them up in, you know, by thirds? So we're actually we're all we're reading all of the essays, and what we are uh, what we are charged with doing is coming up with our top five. And so what we are going to do once we come up with those uh, those top those personal top fives, we're actually going to see where the convergences and divergences are, um, because it may very well be you know in a super super ideal world, yeah, you know, there will be you know two or three essays that are on everyone's list, and so those would sort of naturally float to the top. All right, got it. How long do you anticipate this taking you? Like, what are your expect- expectations for how this will go? Um, so my expectation is that I might, you know, between now and, uh, and December 1st, which is what our committee's deadline is, so we have time to do everything uh, for SEMS um, by the December 14th deadline, I think it is. Um, my assumption is that I'll probably put in, and this is mostly because I am chairing, you know, my assumption is that I'll put in, you know, 30 to 40 hours on this. Um, just because I do want to, I do want to give all of these essays the attention that they deserve. Um, there's probably ways that I could cut it, but because I volunteered for this committee, I don't want to do it halfway. And when and if I, you know, would submit an essay, I wouldn't want anyone to give short shrift to my essay. And that seems an important component of volunteering. We're we're doing it to help serve each other. And so you kind of position yourself of like how would you would want done unto you, you know, how you do unto others. And so that's part of it sort of being respectful because this is ourselves that we're servicing essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is I think that's that's key. And that's one of the reasons that I volunteer um, to serve SEMS um, in many ways when I was on when I was in graduate school and on the job market, I in many ways was spreading myself um, fairly thin across a number of organizations because media studies is, you know, is legible in so many different kinds of departments. Um, But now that I actually have a tenure track job, you know, I feel really, um, really comfortable in saying, you know, SCMS is my home. And because it's my home, I just I decide to serve the the institution slash organization as a volunteer. And my last question, you've already kind of answered this, but I'll ask it uh, in case there's anything else that comes to mind. So what are you most looking forward to about this process and what are you least looking forward to? Do you have like sort of excitements and concerns? So I think my excitements and concerns are kind of sort of the same thing in many ways, um, because you know, we, of course, we all are specialists in various things. And so on one hand, I'm looking forward to reading essays that are outside my area of expertise. At the same time, I am not looking forward to reading <laughs> stuff outside my area of expertise. But I, you know, I think that in many ways, 
um, I would probably say I'm most looking forward to to sort of reading some stuff because because I just like to continue to learn about a whole lot of different things. Um, so I think it will be rewarding even as, you know, as it's work, you know, as I mentioned, yeah, it's going to take me some hours to carve out to get this done. But, um, but I think it's a really important thing for us to do. All right, great. Well, we are going to touch base with you then in a number of months after you're done, and we'll see how it goes. We'll see how, you know, the time went and, and if you really enjoyed your, your journey into this interdisciplinary area. So thanks for uh, giving us a, a preliminary view of it, and we'll talk to you in a few months. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. We are back with Al Martin, and this is, what, six weeks, two months later, when you have now completed the process of uh, reading through all those essays and determining the winner. And we're not going to name the winner because it hasn't been announced yet, so we'll be vague on that part. But we're going to talk about, in fact, you used this description when we last talked, how the sausage gets made. And you said when we spoke first that you decided to volunteer partly because you wanted to better understand how the sausage gets made in SCMS. So did you scratch that itch with this? Yes. Yeah, so in a lot of ways, I um, I did very much under or get to understand at least how uh, some of these awards uh, or at least the best essay award happens. And so in that case uh, or in that sense, rather, it was uh, it was absolutely worth the um, the kind of labor that is uh, that is inherent in this kind of a process. Mm-hmm. And you had predicted uh, an investment of about thirty to forty hours. So did that turn out to be accurate? Yeah, that was that was probably about it. It might have been a little bit less. Um, this year we had thirty eight essays that we had to read, um, and so you know you want to obviously read them as as quickly as you can, but you also want to read them as closely as you can because you are, you know, you don't want to necessarily be like the, um, you know, the phantom uh, Oscar voters um, who we read those um, essays about annually who are like, I just voted for this one because like, I like the name or somebody said it was good. So, um, so yeah, so um, it really does, take the time to to really read them and and try to figure out what they are all about but what is at least to me what was really fantastic about it is that I got to read a lot of scholarship that was both new that I would not have probably read because we get in our own worlds um, but also, I was reading stuff that was outside of my research area, which is not something I'd done since grad school. So, um, so that in and of itself was kind of, kind of awesome in a, in a way, um, because it was like, wow, I'm actually reading this scholarship that I never probably would have read otherwise. There were a couple of pieces in there that I would have read otherwise, but, um, but most of them were completely out of my, uh, my area of research. And in fact, you had said that that was both your, what you were most looking forward to and least looking forward to, because you were sort of afraid of being outside of your comfort zone and also looking forward to it. So it sounds like that in fact ended up being an upside for you. Yeah, it did. Um, because it, it, it really is a kind of a rewarding process because you are reading so much work. It's almost kind of 
you're kind of like reading for a, um, a really disjointed comps exam in the sense that you're reading all of the scholarship. And, um, and I decided for me that um, because I'm last minute on everything, um, but I wanted to just read them and sort of plow through them. And I think I, I plowed through them over the uh, the Thanksgiving break because we're fortunate where we have um, have an entire week, um, and so I was able to plow through them um, in a relatively short period of time. But it was also really nice because I could then sort of keep the details about you know oh like I didn't like this one because of this, and I really like this one because of this, and because I was reading them so close together it was easy to compare and contrast and get rid of some of them and and keep others. And as far as then coming up with narrowing down, you had said that you were with the other committee's members were going to come up with a top five. And so I'm curious, mm-hmm. how much did you match? How hard was it to get to the final winner? Yeah, so, um, so when we all did our top five, there emerged four, yeah, four essays emerged that had two vote two well actually two votes so then uh from that you know fifth from those 15 essays that we all identified we could actually come up with the top four mm. so at that point what i asked the committee to do is to re-review the the four that were in our top four and then re-rank them and once we re-ranked them uh, the top four, we had to do some discussion about which of the top two would be the one. Mm-hmm. But um, we actually were able to do our deliberation entirely over email because it was um, because I think for us, there was such a shade of difference between the ones that emerged as our sort of collective top four, that it was in many ways a space in which any four of those could have uh, could have won, um, because they were they were really that good, and we essentially settled on the winning essay um, because essentially two of the committee members felt most strongly about um, about that one as the top one. But that doesn't mean that we felt less strongly about, you know, the number two, number three, number four. And in fact, we, at least uh, initially, we were considering um, with our top two whether or not we went back to, you know, big SCMS to consider offering a tie because the top two were really spectacular. Do you feel like the committee was the right size for what you had to do? Uh, would you have liked it bigger or, you know, couldn't have been much smaller, but. Yeah. So I, I do think that it is, it is a generally good size. And what I love about even, I'm sorry, odd numbers rather is that it alleviates a tie because, you know, this process um, at least as I managed the process, was a fairly democratic process. And so if the, you know, if the winning essay had two votes and, you know, and my vote was, you know, was against it, which it was not in this case, but, um, you know, if my vote was against it, then it's like, well, you know what, this is a democracy. 
uh, majority rules. Well, we need more democracy these days. It seems like we're getting less and less of it. So we'll find out where we can. We absolutely need more democracy and more people willing to compromise. Right. Um, any final thoughts or bits of advice for SEMS members who either may be inclined to do this or maybe hesitant about taking something like this on? So um, I would say absolutely do it um, because it really is one of those really great times in which you can really figure out how SEMS works in, in these various capacities. And I will also cop to the idea that I knew that these awards were a thing, but for some reason they were just never on my radar um, in terms of, you know, even you know, me applying, you know, for my own work. And so going through the process and seeing how the process shakes out has been one of those things where I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm actually going to make sure that I keep this on my radar so that I can submit my work when the time comes around. And that's a good lesson, both for the volunteering to look through that work, but also for submitting work. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. important thoughts, I think. Yeah. And I mean, and yeah, and some of them, I mean, even the, you know, even the really good essays, you know, it's like, you know, my work is as good as this, these, like this work. Why didn't I submit my stuff? Because we're all smart and we're all doing really good work. All right. Well, that's a great final thought then. Well, thanks so much for uh, letting us in on that process. You are very welcome. As we pause between the segments with Alfred Martin and Michael Newman, I wanted to give you some information about the woman whose name is on both the Essay Award and the Book Award for SCMS. That's Catherine Singer Kovacs. I gathered this information from a pair of tributes in the Quarterly Review of Film and Video and Cinema Journal in the early 90s from Ron Gottesman. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. G-O-T-T-E-S-M-A-N. He was a longtime English professor at USC, a colleague of Catherine Singer Kovacs, who he refers to as Kitty, and a partner with her at the Quarterly Review of Film and Video. So I'll summarize some biographical information from those tributes and also read a few quotes um, from them. Catherine Singer Kovacs was born in Queens, New York in 1946, and she died of cancer in May 1989. She earned a PhD from Harvard in 1974, specializing in French literature. In 1975, she taught her first film class, The History of French Cinema, at UC Berkeley's Extension Division. She also extended her research into Spanish-language cinema and was an assistant professor of Spanish and Portuguese at USC from 77 to 82. And then for the next few years, she was in the comparative literature program at USC. Her last full-time academic appointment was at Whittier College in Southern California, where she taught French and Spanish language and literature courses while also teaching in USC's School of Cinema Television. She was very actively involved in the Quarterly Review of Film Studies beginning in 1979, uh, as well as associate editor of the journal Humanities in Society. She also became widely published on Spanish literature and Spanish language film. Gottesman writes in his quarterly review of film and video tribute, Kitty's interest in foreign cultures, which strengthened and broadened over the years, came from her deepest self, from a recognition that she couldn't continue her own growth as a person without acknowledging imaginatively and sympathetically what we call the other. He continues, She was a true comparatist, capable of handling the most complex interpenetrations of economics, politics, sociology, literature, and the fine and performing arts. While she unquestionably would have left an even greater legacy of first-rate cultural criticism had she lived, what she did accomplish as a scholar makes a large and permanent contribution to our understanding, a contribution she was uniquely equipped to make. Gottesman also offers revealing insight after uh, listing off her extensive publications. 
Measured by any standard, then, Kitty's academic career was marked by genuine distinction, yet she felt justly that she had not received the recognition and rewards that her achievement deserved. But, as I used to tell her on the very rare occasions this subject came up, the Academy has seldom been particularly hospitable to multiply gifted, intellectually omnivorous, and genuinely competent people, especially when they refuse to be careerists. In any event, Kitty's special combination of talent and honesty did not serve her well as an academic, especially as an American woman academic specializing in old world disciplines. For Cinema Journal, Gottesman also wrote about the labor he and Kovacs put into reviewing essays for the quarterly review. He notes that while many reviewers would take shortcuts, Kovacs would not. He writes, in fact, one of the most impressive of Kitty's many fine qualities was her intellectual honesty, the ways in which she embodied the best features of scholarly life, at least as it exists as an ideal. Kitty unfailingly came to these meetings with a marked-up manuscript and at least a paragraph of reasoned response to each manuscript she had read with at least kindred art. Her precise analytic comments addressed the premise of each paper, the scholarly context in which the premise unfolded as an argument, the structure of the argument, the quality of evidence adduced in its support, the adequacy of its style, the originality. If the authors of these manuscripts were not always perfect writers, Kitty was without fail an ideal reader. Near the end of his tribute, Gottesman writes, Perhaps it is worth noting, in conclusion, that Kitty never subscribed to notions that allowed for double lives, split selves. That is, her professional life was lived in the same spirit and out of the same principles as her private life. The same qualities of honesty, probity, attentiveness, sympathy, and reliability characterize Kitty at home and at the office, with professional colleagues and intimate friends, with casual acquaintances and her family. Kitty was a whole person and a large person, and it is hardly surprising that so many people continue to miss her intellectual size and her spiritual heft. Hopefully those words about Dr. Kovacs are heartening for those who have ever served on a Kovacs Award Committee and provide inspiration for those who will in the future, as well as for anyone who submits their work for a Kovacs Essay or Book Award. We'll now continue our journey into the Kovacs Awards by learning more about the Book Award Committee. And our guide through the segment will be Michael Z. Newman, who is professor and chair at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the Department of Journalism, Advertising, and Media Studies. His most recent book is Atari Age, The Emergence of Video Games in America from MIT Press in 2017. Prior to that, he published in 2014 Video Revolutions on the History of a Medium, Columbia University Press, and Indie and American Film Culture, Columbia Press, 2011. So I am joined by Michael Newman. Welcome to the Acamedia podcast, Michael. Thank you. And I'm talking to you today because you are on the Catherine Singer Kovacs Book Award Committee, and I uh, wanted to get some more information about that. So first of all, what led you to want to be on that committee? Why did you volunteer? Well, I should say a few weeks ago when I was walking down the hall toward my office and saw two full boxes of books waiting for me stacked one on top of the other, I kind of wondered myself, why did I volunteer for this committee? But uh, there were a couple of reasons. One is that I was really curious. I wanted to get a backstage view of how the process works. Uh, I had submitted my book for the award last year, and I was really curious how many books were submitted, what kind of books are they, how many of them are about cinema, and how many of them are about other topics, and how does the process work if there are dozens of books? Did anyone read my book, or you know, what was the... Uh, what, what was the process? I wanted to know. And um, I guess another reason is that it's it's a good incentive for me to read new work in the field, which is hard to fit in unless there's some kind of 
expectation, like I'm asked to write a book review or I need to read something for my research or for my teaching. But, you know, often I'm, I'm standing in the book room at SCMS looking at all these really interesting books and thinking, uh, it'd be great to read this. I'm not sure I will because it isn't, you know, really in the middle of some research project I'm, I'm in the middle of. So uh, part of it was my curiosity, uh, kind of get a state of the field kind of view and, you know, just to see how it actually works. Well, speaking of how it actually works and what can insights can you give us right now? What instructions have you begin, been given about how you should go about doing it? And there are other committee members, I assume. And so are you collaborating in some way? What What's the process? Yeah, there are three of us and we're all in different places. We don't know each other. We've been given instructions that uh, we should all go through the submissions. There are 61 books that have been uh Wow. submitted for this award. So it really is two full boxes of books. Uh, and we have determined that in um, the early part of October, we're going to have our first conversation. And at that Skype or uh, you know some other kind of um, discussion that we have, I think we're, we're expecting that each one of us has gone through the whole field of submissions and narrowed down uh, a short list of our own, each of us, um, four to six books. And so that's about, uh, you know, between when I started going through them and when we're going to meet in maybe five weeks to look through these 61 books. So uh, I can't read 61 books in five weeks from cover to cover, uh, and I assume nobody can, uh, who also does, uh, you know, work and life and everything else. So, you know, each member of the committee, I only speak for myself, but I assume each member of the committee is going through them, looking at them, um, reading some of them. We were instructed to read the introduction first chapter of each one. And um, so I've been basically taking two books a day and spending a bit of time with each one to determine whether I think it might make my own personal shortlist. And then we're going to get together and determine what the, the shortlist for the committee is, which would be uh, a small number of books, fewer than 61 books that all of us will read. Do you have any first impressions of the stack besides its size? Anything you're seeing trends-wise of what's been submitted? I do. Well, I guess one of the things I wanted to know most of all is, is in the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, how many of the books submitted for the Best Book of the Year Award are about cinema or about other topics and what's the breakdown? Because the book that I wrote was about video games. I really wanted to know, what am I, what's the competition? And I, I don't really know. I'm not going to be able to access that information, but I can see one year later what the, the competition looks like. So about five, six of the books are about cinema and only cinema. And the, uh, the other submissions, some of them are about movies and other media, and some of them are only about television or some other medium. So that answers a big question that I had, which is what, you know, what's the state of the research in this field? How does it break down into different categories or subcategories? Or maybe not in the field, but in the society. Are you surprised by that? I can't say I am because it's not, I don't think it's that different from the SCMS conference schedule. Um, maybe it's a little bit more skewed toward cinema. Uh, I'm not sure. As someone who is interested in movies and television and other media, I'm not really looking to see, you know, are there certain kinds of books I was hoping to see more of? I was more just kind of curious. So how much time do you think this is going to take you? You've already started, so you get a sense of, you said you're two books a day. What kind of mm -hmm. time investment do you think it's going to take you to get through all the books and, and come up with a winner? Yeah, um, because I'm working this into schedule of many tasks that I have each day. I've been doing this after um, after dinner. 
in the evening, sitting in a comfortable chair, and I look forward to it. I think of it as taking a break from screens. I leave my phone plugged in in another room to charge, and uh, I have two books on my lap and a pen and a notebook, and I'm not staying up all night. So I'm going to um, get some impressions from the book by really sizing up a book the way you would when you're trying to decide whether to read a book when you're standing in a bookstore or at the book table or at amazon.com um, trying to determine, is this book going to be useful for me for my research or am I interested in reading it? Um, I, I'm, I'm reading at, from the beginning. Uh, I'm reading introductions mostly. And uh, it's really revealed to me that the introduction of a book has to be like a sizzle reel. It has to be it has to be crafted with an eye towards capturing the reader's attention because there are some that are doing a good job of that. And I'm impressed by that. And I, um, I'm really asking myself, do I want to, do I want to read this whole book? And do I think it's a likely, um, candidate to be the winner of this prize? So, uh, in a, in a crowded field. And that seems like a lesson for all authors then, not just those who have submitted uh, a work for an award, but as you say, it's just like you would be standing in a, um, in a bookstore or, or at the internet book shopping that, that and, and and even maybe just like an abstract, like the summary with the point of this seems to be really important to craft that that takeaway. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, even the back cover copy, or if it's a if it's a hardcover book with a, a dust jacket, the flap copy, which you think of as it's more like marketing than scholarship. But um, if that's a punchy first few sentences, that's good. That helps me um, make a connection. And if the book has a clearly stated area of focus and argument and, you know, a reason this book exists in the world that's articulated in the first couple of pages. That really helps me a lot. Uh, it gives me a clear sense of, of where it's going and, and um, how I might kind of manage my time through this process, but also get to know this book. So what are you most excited about, most looking forward to in this whole process? What are you least looking forward to about the whole process in the end? Well, I'm looking forward to reading uh, a short list of excellent books. I'm confident that within the 61, there are four to six really good um, new books that are doing groundbreaking research that I probably would not have read otherwise. When I scanned this list of 61 books, there was maybe oh, two or three that I had picked up before, and I knew those were books that I was interested in reading. There are many that I didn't know about and wouldn't know about if they hadn't been submitted for this award. So I'm looking forward to that. I guess I think that there's a kind of question mark or unpredictable element, which is that there's three people who don't know each other who have to come together virtually without sitting around one table. And um, and I'm sure each of us is going to come to that meeting with some favorites. So we might need to persuade each other, you know, we should, we should all read this one or that one. Um, I'm not the chair of the committee, so I think the chair is the one entrusted with, with writing up a, uh, a statement uh, about the winner. But I'm um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading good books, and I guess this, there's also some unpredictability in this process because it, it does involve looking through a lot of a lot of writing. Yeah. Uh, one question: Do you get to keep the book? So, is this free books that you get? Well, no one told me I got to give them back, <laughs> so I think so. An unspoken assumption there. All right, that's that's a perk. Yeah, exactly. Well, you'll have a huge new stack of books on your. And I hope you have shelf room for it. Indeed. And look forward to seeing how this all turns out. Yeah, looking forward to that myself. Welcome back to the podcast, Mike. Hello. And you had said when we previously chatted that you volunteered for the Book Award Committee because you wanted a backstage view of how the Book Award process works. So what takeaways do you have now about how the process works? Is there anything you learned you didn't expect or anything that affirmed your assumptions? I guess I, I might have assumed more. I think that on the one hand, there is a fair bit of subjectivity 
and maybe even arbitrariness in deciding to give one of 60 books this award, because there are many deserving ones. And I'm, I'm sure I would have figured that out on my own if I thought about it. But I also think that the process did lead to coming to a very deserving winner. That's a, a really nice book. It's, it's substantial and original. And uh, I'm really thrilled that we decided on Bright Signals by Susan Murray. So I, I guess for, for myself personally, having looked through 60 submissions and having read the introductions to all those books, there was probably seven or eight that I would, would have been happy to award the uh, Kovacs Award to, but there's three members of a committee. So um, we had to agree on one and that's the one that rose to the top for the three of us in common. And I guess that isn't exactly surprising to me because I think that every year the society members probably write a bunch of deserving books that are you know, worth everybody's um, time and attention and admiration. Um, I guess coming up with one is really hard. And I think that's probably true of any award submission process. There are many deserving entries and um, we make hard choices. And sometimes one, one of the other uh, submissions could, could also have been the winner. I mean, I think that's probably true of the Oscars and of many similar things. Yeah, and we're speaking here in the morning after the Oscars, so that's top of mind. Uh, but, you know, unlike how many think of the Oscars, uh, indeed, Susan Murray's book, Bright Signals, was definitely deserving and will hold up over the years, I assume. Um, so that, and you said there was like seven or eight that, that could also win. What uh, lessons should future media studies book writers take from those? Like, what did you think about what made those particular books stand out as best? Sure, I thought that the, the ones that made my short list were all, they were all real contributions to the literature that showed me something I hadn't seen before. They were based on extensive research. They weren't thin books, they tended to be big books. They were uh, original and um, I guess maybe I shouldn't say that novelty is such an important thing, but um, Right Signals is the only, you know, deeply researched technological history of television that uh, as I recall, was in this field. Um, so I, I think that the, uh, you know, the kind of the weightiness of the book and the, the obvious effort and rigor that goes into it um, certainly helps the, the book stand out. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of different kinds of books for sure. Those are things that I was looking for. You said in our previous conversation you were looking forward to reading books outside of your immediate field. Um, so did you enjoy that part? Did it turn out to be a challenge? And more broadly speaking, what lessons do you take um, away from this experience overall about the state of cinema and media studies book publishing? Sure. Um, I think that the Society for Cinema and Media Studies is still probably mostly made up of people who do cinema studies. And the field of books that I received was mostly about cinema. And the approaches... Um, often for, for very good books were still fairly traditional. There were books about authors or books that carve things up by national cinema. And those are robust and, and rewarding approaches of long standing. I think I was pleasantly surprised to have discovered some books um, on topics I probably wouldn't have encountered before. Some of them would have been by authors who, who uh, might be historians or kind of outside of um, cinema and media studies, strictly speaking. So that, that was a process of discovery for me that um, introduced me to scholars and their work that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And I was very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. 
So having gone through this experience from start to finish, um, do you have any tips for maybe SCMS as an organization and how they operate the awards committees with the book committee specifically, um, or anyone thinking of volunteering for this experience? How do you think this process can best, you know, operate? It's a really hard process. Uh, you know, there were three members of this committee and I've never met them. If I was sitting next to them on the bus, I wouldn't know who, that they were, you know, people I corresponded with. We, um, we all went off on our own and read through, you know, the introductions or first chapters or some portion of each of them and then came together to share our shortlists. And this one happened to be the only book that was on all three of our shortlists. So it rose to the top for all of us. And that made it a very easy process because if we had made completely different lists, if I, if my favorite five or six um, were completely different from the other two people's, that, that would have been more challenging. But it is really an impossible undertaking. I, I don't know if I had a sabbatical to devote to this and nothing else, if I could read 60 books in an academic year and reflect on them in a meaningful way. So I think actually the society is asking a lot of this committee and there's gonna be some necessary kind of superficiality. But at the same time, when you just pick up bright signals and look through it, it's lavishly illustrated with color uh, images. The pictures are beautiful and you can tell just by reading the first few pages where it's going um, and that it's um, a significant contribution, gonna show us something we haven't seen before. So I guess you, you can slice up a book, maybe not by judging it by its cover, but I think uh, you know by knowing something about the author and the topic and um, by, by looking through it. And I think, I think it certainly helped write signals that it's such a beautiful object to hold in your hands. Hmm. So we talked before also about uh, you know whether you whether or not you get to keep all those books. So do you have all those books? What are you going to do with all those books? I have all those books. I'm going to keep some of them because I want them. And some of them I was thinking about giving to graduate students at my university if they agree to make a contribution to our food pantry in exchange. All right. So this is ultimately a public service, even beyond academia. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't have room for all of them. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much for uh, capturing your experience for us. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Super good interviews. Yeah, it was really interesting to find out the, you know, kind of behind the scenes, how things work on the awards committees. I've never been on one, so it was really informative to hear how that goes. Yeah, it's so much work. Mm. One of the things that uh, kind of struck me about it, part of the, um, a big part of the difficult intellectual work of sort of being an academic and trying to figure out how to be a professor is being able to place things on a map. You know, it's it's the kind of cognitive mapping of reading different material from different kinds of perspectives and thinking about how they intersect with one another. And obviously some of the more fun, creative work of, of scholarship is trying to forge new pathways, right? Um, but being able to assess work, figure out what it's contributing and how and who it's in dialogue with is a really challenging skill to develop. Um, and that's what I'm hearing from these guys talking about doing uh, and working through this process is it clearly works best when someone both has the the background and the the expertise to do that kind of work, but also just really takes it on and enjoys the that kind of mapping process. Yeah, and, and both of them were clearly enthusiastic about doing that, but as you mm -hmm. mentioned, that's hard to do. It's hard. And they're on small committees, each committee only three people. That's difficult. Um, and especially I was just kind of stunned 
at how many books Michael and his committee were yeah. given to read, twice as many things to read as what Al Martin's committee had, which seems, you know, first of all, there seems a kind of a labor issue there. We need more people volunteering for these Sounds committees. Like. But I also wonder, like, are there too many books out there as well? I mean, that that's so much stuff. Yeah, and if our field is essentially incentivizing books because mm -hmm. of promotion practices and that kind of thing, then is that necessarily what's actually best? Yeah, yeah, like some of those books might be a, a good article, but because you have to get a book for tenure, you've got to turn mm -hmm. it into a book, and mm -hmm. that's a lot. Um, and then also I wanted to, to throw out an idea. We had been emailing about this after the interview, and, and our producing partner, Bill Kirkpatrick, brought up the idea of incentivizing having people on these committees and he was saying like maybe there could be sort of like there's a travel fund there could be a fund you mm -hmm. donate to like an awards committee fund and and those who do it can get like gift cards or something like that to just to add a little incentive because it does seem like we need more and it's not easy um you know i think hearing those two interviews hopefully you were um, speaking to our listeners you were intrigued enough to feel like this sounds like an experience you would like but mm -hmm. it's not an easy one um so there might need to be some more encouragement to get more people involved I think it's a good idea. We should uh, poke the powers that be. Yes, exactly. Hopefully they're yeah. listening as they head to SCMS. I also wanted to really thank you for doing that background work on mm. uh, Catherine Kovacs. Oh, yeah. That was such a really lovely profile of her, and it yeah. was really nice to hear hear how others have responded to her and, and yeah. characterized her work. And I, I just sort of... You know, because I never knew anything about her, and here's her name mm -hmm. on these awards. And so I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll look into, you know, what she's all about. And reading those tributes, there were just some really poignant things uh, about that that connect with, you know, academia today. And she passed away uh, decades ago, but the things that she stood for, um, those things I think still really resonate today. So I thought it was really mm -hmm. interesting to to kind of resurrect those those ideas. Yeah, thank you for doing that. She just. It, it was it was really, really lovely. Mm -hmm. It was nice. Yeah, and hopefully people can reflect on that when we see the awards given out. So mm -hmm. that will be, uh, is that Friday night at SCMS? Yes, I believe it is. Okay, and there's a really great crop of, of winners. I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody honored, including our very own colleague, Donald Crafton. Yes, is getting indeed. Is it like the Lifetime Achievement yeah. Award? Is career, that um, the, the Career Award. Career Award, yeah. So And he, uh, of course, a longtime professor at University of Notre Dame, and prior to that, University of Wisconsin. So he's been in our lives for a long time. And it's uh, you know it'll be great to be able to to see him celebrated. It will, and I'm sure certain it will be funny as well. He is a man with a great sense of humor, he so is. this won't be a really uh, you know kind of weepy thing. I think it'll be a a, no, a, a rip roaring good time. He's actually really really great in front of a crowd. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. All right, so those of you ho hopefully hearing this on your way to Seattle, we have a segment for you. This is something we've resurrected from our 2014 episode where I uh, talked with people at, I believe it was University of Washington, mm -hmm. and got some suggestions of things to do during SCMS in Seattle. And so we're just going to play that from start to finish. Um, most of it is still valid. We'll, you know, at the end of it, I'll, I'll mention what things are closed. But uh, most everything here still holds. It's a really good travel profile. Yeah, and especially the ending song I've had in my head ever since. So, here we go.
we wanted to try to help out those coming to Seattle, especially those who had never been there before. You have generally very little free time at a conference because the conference is so darn good. But with that free time, then you want to make sure to maximize it. And so I asked for help on this from Jennifer Bean, who is Associate Chair of Comparative Literature and Cinnamon Media Studies at the University of Washington. And I wonder if she could hook me up with a few scholarly locals in Seattle who could help fill us in on uh, local areas of interest at SCMS Seattle. So she delivered some very helpful people to me. So here I offer you audio clips from uh, UW grad students Kathy Morrow and Verena Kick. Plus, I'm reading some email tips that I got from UW professor Claudia Gordman. Good stuff. First of all, it's SCMS. You will need coffee. Luckily, you'll be in Seattle. Since Seattle is the home of Starbucks, you're never far from one when you're downtown. Just ask anyone. But for the original historical Starbucks, walk down to the Pike Place Market. Turn right and walk a couple of blocks on Pike Place. Also along Pike Place are all kinds of eats, two bakeries, including one very good French one called La Peignet, with good sandwiches, as well as real French pastries and breads and coffee, as well as stand-up windows for gyros and other ethnic foods. When it comes to a quiet cafe, to get away a bit from the hotel and maybe to talk with a publisher about a book project, I would recommend the Bell Epicurean on 4th Avenue between University and Spring Avenue. It is a French bakery that has delicious pastries and macaroons. It might be busy during lunchtime when many office workers stop by, but later in the afternoon one can easily grab one of their small tables and have a nice chat. One other handy place for coffee is in Pacific Place, an upscale shopping center one block from the hotel. The ground floor atrium there is nice for coffee, cold drinks, and light eats. Speaking of places to eat, Pacific Place has several restaurants too. Most pleasant is Il Forneo, an Italian restaurant at the far end of the main floor. If you want a real Seattle experience for lunch, find the cafe in the Pike Place Market that serves clam chowder. Go upstairs for a tiny table with an incredible view of the harbor and ferries as you slurp your chowder or eat burgers. Also a very congenial restaurant is the Pink Door at 1919 Post Alley. Great for an intimate or festive dinner. Regarding lunch, I would definitely recommend Cafe Yum, which is really close to the conference hotel. Cafe Yum started out as a small vegan and veggie restaurant in Eugene, Oregon, and has now branches as well in Washington State. Cafe Yum is all about its yum sauce, which is based on a mixture of garlic and peanuts, and thus it is very yummy. Usually, you order a yum bowl there, which means you get a variety of veggies together with some rice and cheese and, of course, the delicious yum sauce. When it comes to dinner, the Wild Ginger is a place that I would definitely recommend. It is an Asian restaurant and a satay bar. The staff there are always incredibly friendly and accommodating and the food is exceptionally good. Also, La Pichet at 1933 First Avenue is a delightful, small, thoroughly French bistro serving classic fare, fantastic for both lunch and dinner. A little bit more of a hike, but worth the 20-minute walk or 5-minute taxi for the best food in Seattle is the Tillicum Place Cafe near the Seattle Center, i.e. near the Space Needle. Reservations are definitely necessary for lunch or dinner. It's got a brilliant chef, a great atmosphere. It's small, so not appropriate for a group of more than four people. Seattle also has a lively Chinatown, which has its Southeast Asian, Japanese, and Chinese areas. Have someone show you the nearest entrance to the bus tunnel, hop a free ride to Chinatown, and explore and eat. Okay, so let's imagine you just delivered the paper of your life. Where do you head next to celebrate? Some of my favorite places are relatively close to hotel. If you go 
walk across I-5. Just up there on Pine and Melrose is Pine Box. They have a great craft beer list, good food, relatively big tables if, if you're not there too late. Also right in that area is Woody's, which has, I think, the best burgers in Seattle. After you've delivered a great paper and want to celebrate your success, you should head straight to Capitol Hill and to Art Fellas, which is an awesome restaurant. If you want to have good food and good drinks with a nice atmosphere and celebrate with three, four, five, or even more people, this is definitely the place to be. Okay, it happens once in a lifetime you deliver a bad paper. Where do you go to shake off the blues? Well, what I would do is I would walk over close to the hotel, um, is Pacific Place Mall, and on the second floor they have a trophies cupcake stand. So I would get myself a cupcake, and then I would take my cupcake out the other entrance of the mall on Olive, walk up a couple blocks, and on your right there is a doggy daycare with huge windows. The whole walls are windows, so you can look in and see the dogs, and it's really cute and I think would make anyone feel better. Um, fun fact, Seattle has more dogs than children, so we love our dogs here. After you've delivered a disastrous paper and want to forget it ever happened, you should head straight to Capitol Hill, either to Lost Lake, a 24-hour dino with excellent food and cheap beer to drown your sorrows, or you and a pal should head to Pie Bar, because pie makes everything better, and pie teenies let you forget any mishaps you've had. If you do get a chance to get away from the conference for a half day or so, here are some ideas. Walk all the way toward the water and stroll along the waterfront. Seafood places with fish and chips are there, curiosity shops. It's touristy, but pleasant to breathe in the sea air and the bustle of the docks. For galleries and glimpses of old Seattle, hop on a free bus to the Pioneer Square area or walk there down First Avenue. I would say skip the Space Needle. It's overpriced and touristy, and it's frankly just as good to look at from the outside than from the inside. If you did want to get some different views of the city, one place that's kind of fun is Smith Tower, which is an older building over in Pioneer Square. And it's definitely not as tall as some of the places, but um, it has some good views and it's kind of a quirky, fun building. Another option is to find the Washington State Ferry Dock on the waterfront. For a few bucks, step on a magnificent ferry ride to Bainbridge Island and back. It's a half hour each direction. Imagine yourself in five easy pieces. On a nice day especially, you get gorgeous views of water in the mountains, and on the ferry you can fret over your paper if you haven't delivered it yet. If you have time for an hour in Bainbridge Island, it's an adorable town with bookstores and good eats just one block up from the ferry. A goofy tourist thing to do is to take the monorail. That's right, monorail! Built in 1960 for the World's Fair and still running, which takes you from Westlake Center, which is just a few blocks from the hotel, to the Experience Music Project right past the Space Needle. Uh, the EMP, Experience Music Project, is Frank Gehry's weird and wonderful museum of popular music and also houses a sci-fi museum. Speaking of other media study specific things to do, you can head to possibly the best video store remaining in the United States, which is Scarecrow Video. This is not within walking distance, but the Sheridan desk can point you to the right bus to get to the University District. I would recommend the Living Computer Museum. The collection presents the meaningful milestones in the evolution of computers, particularly from the 1960s to the 1980s. Their vintage computers are restored to working conditions so visitors can interact with them in a variety of ways. For queer spaces, I would say check out what is going on at Rebar, where they do drag shows quite frequently. 
In addition, the $3 bill cinema has a mix of campy to political films and cineoki. If the weather is nice, I would recommend to take half a day off and come see the cherry trees, which will be in bloom on the campus of the University of Washington. Or even better, take the time to walk to Gasworks Park, starting at um, the University of Washington's campus. It is about a 30 minute of a walk, but you are rewarded with a lush green park centered around a former gaswork, and of course you are also rewarded with a great view of Lake Munion and the entire skyline of Seattle, including of course the Space Needle. A couple of random things about Seattle that I kind of wish someone had told me before I moved here. First you'll notice Seattleites wait at intersections so they don't cross against the light, pedestrians, which is a little bit strange, but it's one of Seattle's things. One of the other things that is a bit odd is, so if you're at a bar that doesn't have servers and you need to go and just order your drinks from the bar, Seattleites line up. It's pretty standard. Instead of just waiting around the bar and expecting the bartender to come to you, everyone gets in a very civilized line and waits there to order their drinks. It's strange and it's worth knowing. Otherwise, I would say mainly just, you know, get out of downtown, go see some other part of Seattle because I think the rest of the city is more interesting, really, than, than downtown. The bluest skies you've ever seen are in Seattle. And the hills the greenest green in Seattle Like a beautiful child growing up free and wild Full of hopes and full of fears Full of laughter, full of tears Full of dreams to last the years In Seattle In Seattle When it's time to leave your home and your loved ones It's the hardest thing a boy can ever do And you pray that you will find Someone warm and sweet and kind But you're not sure what's waiting there for you The bluest skies you've ever seen are in I'm gonna have that Seattle song I know, it's, for I'm yeah, I'm if, doomed. My day's over. If you need to hear the whole thing, we do have a link to it on our website. And every single place you heard cited in that segment is a link to on our website, aka-media.org. And big thanks again to Jennifer Bean, who helped to connect us with Kathy Morrow, Verena Kick, and Claudia Gorman. Also, a big thank you to um, Adam and Derek Fairholm for permission to use portions of the music Derek composed for Adam's documentary film Pope Michael as the background music. And that was a good that was a good catch there. Yeah, it's it's really good stuff. Um, I have just a few more Seattle tips to add, and this is courtesy, actually, of Anne Helen Peterson's Facebook page. She teaches at Whitman College in the Pacific Northwest and has plenty of friends up there. So she asked them for suggestions for things to do in Seattle. So I thought I would finish off this segment by throwing a few of those things out. So first of all, the sites people recommended, the Olympic Sculpture Park, the Washington Park Arboretum. So lots of nature spaces to think about how your paper went. Um, Ballard Locks. The Ballard Locks are actually really great. It's a Ballard is a great old kind of working class port there's some good pubs up there mm -hmm. and it's fun to go check that out uh the fremont troll which is apparently kind of an art installation a statue of, of sorts of a troll under a bridge yeah it's under the fremont bridge the whole fremont area has become a little more gentrified than it used to be but it's kind of a cute little area down between u-dub and lake union there's also haunted pike place market ghost tours and i do love a good ghost tour every town <laughs> i go to i love to do a ghost tour 
I wonder, do they, they probably go into the Seattle underground too. Ooh. You know, there's a whole like underground Seattle, the sunken city. There's got to be plenty of ghosts down there. Also, I don't know if Bruce Lee and Brandon Lee haunt Seattle, but you can find their grave sites. A couple additional restaurant recommendations, Westward, Staple and Fancy, Boat Street Cafe, Ray's Boathouse, and Paseo, and Purple Cafe and Wine Bar downtown for more upscale dining. Those are good. And for uh, drinks, the happy hour at Sazerac, I'm told. Well, that doesn't sound bad. Yeah. There's a good little pub, the Two Bells Tavern down on, it's on 4th, down toward the Space Needle. It's a good little pub with, with beer and chili and stuff like that. You know, not fancy, but... Well, we are CMS people. We don't do fancy. We're, we're all down to earth. Yep. All right. Uh, one final tip to get to the hotel and back from the Seattle airport. You probably saw oh, this is good. that Yeah, SEMS set up a deal on a shuttle service. But Annie Peterson points out an even better, in other words, way cheaper option, is to take the Seattle light rail. It starts at the airport, leaves every 10 minutes or so, and about 40 minutes later, you'll be at the last stop, which is called Westlake. So you can't miss it. It's just wait till the thing stops fully. That's such a great plan. It's only three blocks from the SEMS hotel. It only costs a few dollars. Um, just one warning, those three blocks of the hotel apparently involve some hilly terrain. So if you have a ton of luggage or any physical challenges, the directional may work better for you. But otherwise, sounds like Seattle Light Rail is the way to go. That's so amazing that that's finished and, and in service. That's great. Don't forget your bumper shoot. Oh, what? Your bumper shoot. Come on, you're the Anglophile here. I know, brawly. I don't know what a bumper shoot is. It's a brawly. A bumper shoot is a brawly. Okay. It will mark you hopelessly as a tourist because, you know, Northwesterners just as a general rule don't use umbrellas, but yeah, go ahead, take it with you. I don't mind looking like a tourist. I am one. You know, I embrace what I am. So there you go. Once again, all of the links for everything we've just mentioned are on our website. So go hit that, aca-media.org, and you can find your way to any of the stuff we've talked about. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at aca underscore media. It's nice to hear about Seattle. I'm looking forward to it. It's me you know, too. It's, it's um, it's old home to me. Oh, that's uh, right. You're from the area, part. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and just a quick update. In fact, one of the places you mentioned, the Two Bells Tavern, yep. is sadly closed. So or don't one. go seeking out the Two Bells Tavern. It's kind of a trek anyway, so you probably didn't want to like okay. schlep over there in the rain. And, yeah. And then the other one I mentioned, uh, Sazerac, that has been uh, undergone a name change. So that is now Outlier. So look for Outlier rather than Sazerac. But everything else, I, I Googled all the other places, and they're all open. And so all of those things, like if you you know need some comfort and go get a cupcake and look at the uh, doggy daycare, that stuff is still valid. So go check all that out. And what are you doing at SMS? Are you giving a paper? Uh, I am giving a paper. I'm doing photographs again. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'm doing a paper on long-form serial uh, melodrama, historical melodrama on TV. So all historical right. shows. Nice. Yeah. Well, actually, that, that intersects slightly with mine, because yeah. I'm also talking about melodrama, talking about the soap opera EastEnders, and I'm on a panel about the very special episode. I honestly, you've got like a bunch of highlighter <laughs> around around that panel, on my, at least on my program, or on my, stuff. my printout of it. Like the Nancy Reagan uh, Different Strokes episode. It's all of the very specials. Yes. And then I come in, I, I throw a curveball with a British soap opera episode, which is about knife crime, so... Mine's a little bit different, but uh, but yeah, it should be a really fun a panel. Very special panel. A very special panel. That's going to be the running joke. I also should note, speaking of what we do here with podcasting, uh, uh, courtesy of the Digital Humanities and Videographic Criticism 
SIG, if that's what they're called. I know mm-hmm. the digital humanities part. I don't know mm-hmm. if I got it exactly right. But they are sponsoring a series of uh, basically information sessions. A number of the members are offering their expertise. So if you want to learn about how to do video essays, um, those kinds of things, check out that in the program. They're listed in the program. And I will be doing one Friday at 4 o'clock on podcasting. Nice. That'll be just before the awards. Yes, exactly. And so um, the location is listed in the program. So if you want to learn more uh, about podcasting and, you know, I'll bring my equipment, I'll have my my editing equipment there. I can show you how we put together this very episode. Um, So if you are interested in starting a podcast of your own and need some advice, come check that out. That is super meta. Yeah, exactly. Right on. That's and and actually on Twitter, Miles McNutt warned, watch out if someone then creates a podcast called Scholar Media that we might get, yeah, we might get, uh, we might have intellectual property issues here. But the more podcasts, the better, I say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, our productivity rate of late has been (laughs) uh, such that. That's There's true. Probably room for competition. I think there is room for yeah. We try to be monthly, but then we get sick and overworked, and you know I don't know where the time goes. It's just like suddenly SEMS is here. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. All right, but yes, more podcasts. But we'll keep our podcast going. We'll we'll do our best. We will indeed. All right, so have fun at SEMS. See you in Seattle. It should be a good trip. Uh, and of course, none of this would be possible without the hard work of uh, an entire team of folks. Todd Thompson's Golden Ears down in Austin, Texas. Make it all listenable. Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University is uh, indefatigable. Oh, isn't that a good word? That's a great word. And I think it's I think it suits him. It does. That's nice. I think yeah. he'll be pleased to hear that. Yeah. All right. We also couldn't do this without the help of Stephanie Brown, who is now at St. Louis University, Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester, and Frank Mondelli at Stanford University. It's very, very uh, good crew, and we really appreciate all their help. And thank you to those who participated in this episode. So not Alfred E. Newman, but in fact, Alfred Martin and Michael Newman. And thanks to Todd Thompson for digging up the old segment we had on Seattle. Mm -hmm. And of course... We are also grateful for the support of the University of Notre Dame and Denison University. Yes, Department of Communication at Denison. Thank you very much. And also SCMS helping us out. All right. We, we got everything all I like think we mixed did. up. and It's all in there. It's, it, a little, it it's a little out of order, but that's what happens when we, when we have these shakeups. Yeah, we got to get back in the groove again. Yeah. Did we, have we tried the, uh, the website? Aka-media.org. Ooh. Oh, and info at Ica. Oh, dang it. <laughs> That's the first I've messed it up that way. I've never yeah. mispronounced it. Aika. Like <laughs> Info it. at Aka. Is there a hyphen in the email address too? Yes. Info at Aka-media.org. Right. Right. Or on Twitter at Aka underscore media.org. All right. We're having fun. Somebody must. <laughs> All right. Happy spring. Happy spring.